Muddy News Media. This news just in, listeners. The Athletic is extending its £1 a month offer for all new subscribers, meaning you can get unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a brand new breaking news service and ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts for just a quid. This deal won't last forever, though, so don't miss out. Sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally. football show today who turned the goals off we review a more measured weekend in the premier league with narrow wins and a man united chelsea like a metric converter they put in lots of pounds the results were just cagey elsewhere we salute leeds their violin playing striker patrick bamford and other footballers who had more than one string to their bow and we round up el Clasico with more catalan controversy all of that and more in this totally football show in association with paddy power Hello, listener. It's Monday, the 26th of October. And here to reflect for you on the weekend's action and more, we got Daniel Story. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. Here from the Eye, Matt Davis Adams, co host of the brand new Two Stars podcast. That's right. Yeah. Hello, James. Hello to you, Matt. And also with us, Dominic Fifield of, well, I guess The Athletic these days. Hey, Dom. I hope so. Unless you know something I don't. (laughs) No. Lovely to see you again. Um, well, there's loads to talk about. We've just come fresh from Arsenal's uh, 1-0 defeat at home to Leicester. A little slice of history that was. But before we start with uh, any of the weekend chat, just like to say goodbye, first of all, to our old friend Kevin McCarra, who, as you may have seen, died this weekend at the age of 62. Kevin, a, a warm, softly spoken, lyrical Scotsman who many listeners will recall with affection from the early years of the old Football Weekly. And he was also a, a lovely chap. Dom, you knew him at The Guardian. Yeah, a lovely, gentle, kind man, beautiful writer as well. Uh, loved football, uh, would talk for Scotland and all things Celtic, um, but was genuinely empathetic when something good happened to a colleague's team. I mean, on the rare occasions Crystal Palace did well, he'd text me with, with congratulations or, or even a little observation that he'd seen from the game, but always very, very positive about it all. Uh, Jonathan Wilson's done a lovely piece on the Guardian website today and the payoff to which it just describes him as a thoroughly nice man and a, I think that that is a fitting tribute to, to Kevin. He was also, a, should be mentioned, a, a dreadful transcriber. Um, there was a, a classic story from a build-up to a Euro 2008 qualifying game against Israel where he he had to transcribe Steve McLaren's um, pre-match um, comments for the pack sort of the the duties had fallen on him that day and McLaren for some reason had 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 drawn up this analogy of a a bullfight about to happen a terrible terrible analogy but he used the term the real bull in there which Kevin bless him heard as the rainbow for some reason and all the red tops when they received when they received Kevin's emailed transcript later that night, all the red tops mocked up George Zippy and Bungle on their back pages for the next the next morning, and but literally no nobody nobody even with, within the FA possibly not even McLaren um, saw that as a as Kevin being mischievous in any way. It was purely a, a mistake, and he was he was not that way at all. He was he was just just a lovely lovely man. Well, a fine story and, and, and as you say an absolutely lovely fellow and uh, as we salute him and offer our best wishes to his family 
Uh, we'll just conclude this bit with the closest we could get to the old Kevin McCarry jingle from back in the day. Well, on to the weekend's action, which saw the top two beaten, West Ham adding another surprise result to their string of remarkable achievements of late and a sudden paucity of goals. It's the first Premier League weekend that we haven't had at least one crazy scoreline yet because you've still got Brighton, West Brom and, and Burnley Spurs to go. But for now, Leeds probably the most spectacular victory back on Friday with their 3-0 over uh, Aston Villa. On Sunday night, we did get a little slice of history, though, with Leicester, who hadn't won at Arsenal in any competition since 1973, before any of us were seven years old, uh, coming away from the Emirates with a 1-0 victory. How? Why? What does it mean? That's what we'll discuss next. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Tielemans. There's the run of under. He could take it on here. Vardy! Leicester City have struck here at the Emirates with 11 minutes to go. It could be the perfect smash and grab. So, Sunday night at the Emirates, Jamie Vardy returning and and sparking a frustrating affair into life with the game's only goal. And Leicester, after a couple of duff results, take home three big points. I observed this game, to borrow Cantona's motif, like cows watching passing trains. Can anyone explain to me what actually happened? It was a fairly turgid affair throughout, other than that that goal, which was really out of keeping with the, the general pattern of the game. Really excellent pass from Tielemans, lovely first-time cutback from under the substitute and, and the fellow substitute Vardy doing what he always does against Arsenal. Scoring for the 11th time, but it, I mean, I was a bit like you, James. I, I was watching it, but I wasn't really paying much attention because it wasn't holding my attention. Mm. And I was feeling a bit dirty about having paid for the privilege to watch such a game and such a, a low wattage production at that. Right. Daniel, what have you got? Yeah, I mean, Arsenal were the better team in, in the first half and probably were unlucky not to go into the break in front. But the second half was really worrying. I mean, not maybe not long term, because I think one of the things we've probably learned over the last few weeks is that every side is going to lose to a side that we don't expect them to. But just being completely unable to kind of stamp their authority, having having gained the advantage in terms of territory and possession and chances, if not a goal. And the longer the game went on, you could tell the more Leicester thought, well, we've got Jamie Vardy on the bench. He's not completely fit, but even if we give him half an hour against Arsenal, it'll, it'll do something. And just that the lack of creativity from Arsenal to turn what was good possession and territory, as I say, into really clear-cut chances was kind of a hallmark of old Arsenal, really. That sort of um, you know sterile domination, as as Wenger once called it, um, was, was there. Um, this will happen. Arsenal are not going to move forward in huge leaps, I don't think, under Arteta because they don't spend enough money. They're going to move forward two steps and back one, but this was very much the back one. Mm. Although this is a side that featured such delights as Lacazette and Aubameyang and also new signing Thomas Partey as well. Uh, Why is it that this is now two games in a row they haven't even managed to score in? Well, Lacazette and Aubameyang both look 
pretty woefully out of form in front of goal and, and that, that was illustrated in the first half by that extraordinary Lacazette miss where he, he didn't manage to get on the end of a cross across the face of the six-yard box and and Aubameyang finding chances hard hard to come by generally. Obviously, part of that's the position that he's, he's playing on the pitch but yeah, sterile was was the word that, that came to my mind as well and, and mm. Leicester took advantage of that. They didn't seem to get Caballos and Partey involved in the right areas very much. Everything seems to go through Xhaka in midfield still, and surely that they they've got to play on Kabayas's creativity and and whatever Partey's going to bring, whether that be drive, dynamism, or whatever. Maybe it's just an adaptation period still, and they're still trying to work out the balance in in that midfield. But but it seemed to be. I mean, I think that the stats prove that. I think Xhaka had twice as many touches, as many touches as the other two put together, or something. I mean, which is which is. Which is daft, really, because you want your creative players, particularly when you're up against blanket defence. And, you know, Leicester didn't play with a striker for the first hour. Um, as soon as Vardy came on, though, the whole it, it just transformed. And you could see that Arsenal, they almost knew what was coming. Uh, not least because uh, they, they'd already lost David Luiz as well and were, were, were sort of trying to integrate Mustafi back into that back line as well. It just looked like a, a car crash was imminent. And um, Vardy does, he does that. I think it's 38. Of his 109 Premier League goals have been against the top six in 69 matches. I mean, it's so, astonishing. Yeah, 24% of all his Premier League goals ever have been against Arsenal, Liverpool or Man City. That from <laughs> uh, Duncan Alexander, uh, of course. Uh, which just begs the question, had they signed him mm. whenever it was four seasons ago, would they now have won the title, do you think, Arsenal? I guess we'll never know. Daniel, does this game feature in your winners and losers tomorrow? Uh, it will do. Uh, I've written Saturdays, and I'll do Sundays first thing in the morning, Ooh. or after after we record. But um, so, who have you got so far? So top of the winners, I've got Patrick Bamford's finishing. His chance conversion rate in the championship last season was was eleven percent, which was far below the the elite strikers in that division. He's currently at twenty six percent, albeit with a very small sample size. But his hat trick on on Friday night was was something to behold. His third goal, I have to say, it's, it sounds hugely hyperbolic, but had shades of Burkamp for me, the way he opened up his body and used the defender to kind of curl the ball around it and into the corner. And the second one was that was just a thrashed finish into the top corner. And, you know, this is a guy who'd scored one Premier League goal before turning 27. And he's now scored six in his first six this season in the Premier League, which is pretty remarkable. It's extraordinary. That 3-0 win, by the way, and Leicester's victory too, have moved them both up in the table. We've now got the entire top eight separated by just three points. Everton and Liverpool level uh, on 13 points with Aston Villa and Leicester only a point behind. And then you've got Leeds, Southampton, Crystal Palace and Wolves. Well, let's turn then to Leeds' 3-0 victory at Villa on Friday night. That explosive second half, says Villa manager Dean Smith. We probably got away with the 3-0 in the end with the chances they had. Patrick Bamford's 19-minute hat-trick uh, taking him to, as you say, six in six in this season. Leeds have scored 12 in their first six Premier League games, which is uh, the most by newly promoted side at this stage of the campaign since Middlesbrough back in the very first season of the Premier League. You know, so that's a lovely comparison for them. Bielsa's Leeds, Borough. Right. Uh, Noel Doonan says, seeing that the big guns are not firing on all cylinders yet, how high can this Leeds team finish this season, given the way they're playing at the moment? I would imagine a kind of... Uh, Sheffield United scenario whereby they uh, do really well for the first three quarters of the season then it tails off a bit they end up finishing in the top 10 and that's seen as a good achievement the concern with Leeds is always that they 
they burn out slightly, isn't mm. it? I mean, they, they, he he gets them working so hard that they hit a hit a wall at some stage. And I guess if ever there's going to be a season where that happens, a season like this, which is condensed as it is, I suppose that that the possibility is there that it, that it could have fit them this time. But they they're playing with such confidence and with no fear whatsoever to 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 go and do that to. To Villa, a, a team who were untouchable in their opening four games, twenty-seven shots from Leeds at Villa Park. I mean, it's it's brilliant, and it's and it's the, the verve of the attack and the dynamism of the, of the attacking football. It's it's great to see. It's brilliant to see them back, and it's brilliant to see them tearing up this division. Mm. The whole issue of getting tired. Of it. But one factor in, in that is that they got through the championship okay last time, getting promoted, and, and this season, even though it's more compressed is significantly shorter than the campaign they went through in the Championship. Villa, who'd put seven goals past Liverpool, the closest they got to a goal here was that shot cleared off the line by Ailing. Uh, although it wasn't reasonably even first half, it was just in the second half, they they were overwhelmed, Daniel. Yeah, they were. It really did feel like Leeds' kind of breakout performance. I know they there was some chaotic brilliance against Manchester City and they, they did pretty well against Liverpool. But this felt like the, the real breakout performance. It, it's not just the, the, the energy, it's it's how well trained those players are to, to press the right areas at the right time because you know the, the stats are there. They run more than any other team and yes, that may well hurt them in late season, but um, it's also very tiring to play against them in terms of mental concentration because every time you you look around there's a player cutting off your passing lanes, which means you have to either try and think outside the box, which can unnerve some players who aren't used to it, or attempt something speculative, which leads for Bielsa factors that they will win the ball back by forcing teams to do that. So I think we're absolutely right to talk about Leeds fatigue, but it's also really damn hard to play against them when they when they press so effectively. And and it feels like every time they're getting the ball off you, they're creating chances, which is exactly what happened in that second half on Friday. There's a certain thrilling incongruity of a, of a posh footballer is Patrick Bamford a posh footballer he's got A-levels and I also read that he turned down a business scholarship at Harvard Harvard University in favour of the football is that right he went to a he's an alumni of my old school I'm happy to reveal uh he was my little brother's mate at school and he's that's not, extraordinary Daniel I mean he's not you know, he. I suppose if we're being very classist about it, he's posh in, in football terms, which is an awful thing to say. But mm. um, it, it always happens this way that, you know, it happened with Frank Lampard and his, his Latin GCSE. It happens with, with Bamford and his, his violin. And the reality is, is that what violin? when he gets... Yeah, he, so he played, the, he played the violin, I think, at school and that became a thing because he said it in an interview once. And um, it, the reality is, is it, it is a stick with which to beat him when things aren't going well, which is a, a bit harsh, really. You know, he didn't choose where to go to school. He He's a very, very good footballer and he left that school early because it's a rugby school and he wanted to play football and see if he could mm. make it as a footballer. And, and fair play, he has. I was reading something on The Athletic earlier, actually, by Phil Hay about Patrick Bamford and his kind of nomadic early stages of his career and saying that, you know, he rubbed... Uh, Sean Dyche the wrong way because he was perceived as being this kind of privileged guy and, and that didn't go with, with Sean Dyche's you know, values for Burnley and what have you. But I think it it kind of just shows that you can't put a value on feeling valued. You know, there, There's detail in that piece as well about how Alan Pardew treated him at, at Palace and that kind of thing. And, and you always go back to that famous 
a video from the Leeds training ground of him scoring that volley when he's working his way back from fitness and, and Bielsa doing a, a mad sort of 50-yard dash to go and celebrate with him and, and, and that kind of feeling the arm around him. You know, he didn't he didn't have it at Chelsea, probably wasn't even at Forest long enough to have, have it. And then he's farmed out to, to various sort of mid-table championship clubs on loan, often played on the wing, often starting from the bench. And, and at Leeds, it's the opposite. He is the main man and has been ever since Bielsa's been there. Mm. Well, whatever is happening to him currently, it's certainly working. I was so excited about his kind of unexpected skills with A-levels and that, that I, I prepared a little list of footballers like Socrates, who was a doctor, and Popescu, who was a secret police informer, and things like that, you know, players with a little bit more to their curriculum vitae. Is that a skill, being a, being a snitch? Is that a skill? <laughs> I imagine it must be, because he, he was working for the secret police of Romania, who apparently were trying to bring down Stav Bucharest, but then he actually got loaned to Stav Bucharest, which must have been really awkward. Others on my list, so we don't have to come back to it later, are, is, of course, presented Elizarizou, who is a jiu-jitsu European champion. That's impressive. Um, and I think that's it, actually. Oh, you know who else? Axel Twanzebe, who, as you've probably all seen, is a Guinness World Record holder for clearing hungry hippos. This is a genuine thing, and there's a picture of him looking really glum as he holds this Guinness World Record certificate for clearing hungry hippos, which is a game which involves what? Uh, who's got kids? Dom? Uh, how, how does hungry hippos work? Four plastic hippos who snap, <laughs> snap their mouths or their jaws forward to, to take sort of coloured balls, is it, or discs, mm, marbles, yeah, marbles, but, yeah, yeah. But he beat he, a teammate he, to do that. I mean, that wasn't. I think no, yeah, they were contrived. on a. Yeah, it was a pre-season tour of the United States. This is actually back in July 2018, and a uh, a series of Man United players tried their luck at this most demanding of tests, it was Twanzibi who set a new world record of 17 point something seconds. It sounds like an elaborate ruse for Ed Woodward to make Hasbro or Waddington (laughs) the the official board games partner of United. (laughs) Very shortly we'll be talking about Twanzibi's day job, Man United. At Paddy Power, we know competition for the remote control can be fierce at the weekends. So, in order to give the non-football-loving occupants of your house something to do, here are some of our top suggestions. Go for a walk. Walk the dog. Walk to the shops. Go cycling. Cycle the dog. Recycle the dog. Just go! All very good options, we say. And that's not the only one. If one leg of your 4 plus fold acker lets you down, get a free bet on all football leagues and all markets. Paddy Power. Max free bet £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg, online exclusive, exclude shop bets, T's and C's apply, 18 plus, begambleaware.org. The Totally Football Shows and The Athletic are delighted to be supporting Football Aid for the months of October and November. Bid now at footballaid.com to get your hands on some incredible football memorabilia, including signed shirts from Steven Gerrard, Gianluca Vialli, Gareth Bale and even Peter Crouch's boots. Find out more, get bidding and support the cause at footballaid.com. Saturday, Man United met with Chelsea at Old Trafford on a rainy afternoon and the proverbial damp squib was the result. Nil-nil, took half an hour for a shot on goal from either side and uh, we ended up with, uh, well, 90 minutes of not conceding but punctuated by one or two interesting bits. There was that huge penalty appeal when the VAR boys were presumably out making tea. There was a good first stab at a comedy goalkeeper pass of the season from Eduardo Mendy. Uh, a few shots of forlorn uh, van der Beek. And the final 10 minutes when things became a bit more stretched and there was a cracking Mendy save 
on Rashford. What what do you make of it, uh, of the nil-nil? And who comes out of it with any credit, do you think? I thought that it requires a context of what happened to Chelsea against Manchester United last season, not least on the opening day at Old Trafford when Chelsea had had attempted to take the the game to United and, and probably been the the slicker team moving forward, but ended up being beaten 4-0 with four goals on the counter-attack. And up in the studio that afternoon, um, Jose Mourinho was one of the pundits out of work at the time um, and said that he knew Frank Lampard needed to play with more know-how. Well, he, he did play with more know-how this weekend. Um, he tweaked his formation again, went with three at the back. He's got an organiser now in Thiago Silva, who did a, a wonderful job uh, at the heart of the defence. He's got a goalkeeper who doesn't look as if he's going to throw one in every five minutes. Uh, unfortunately, that's what Kepper had become. Edouard Mondi looks has started so well. Three successive clean sheets now. Only the only the goal conceded to Lamella in the the League Cup, I think, against him so far. So he's made a fine start to his Chelsea career. And and yes, Chelsea would have liked to have created more going forward and been more of an attacking force given the amount of money they've spent on attacking players this summer. But but actually, where they were a couple of weeks back, what they needed was some solid defensive displays, a, a basis on which they could build on things, a foundation. And they've got that now. Successive clean sheets this week against Sevilla, who are an excellent team in the Champions League, and, and, and Manchester United, who were desperate to get that first win of the season at Old Trafford under their belts. And, mm. and I think Chelsea came out of that with a lot of credit and and will have been buoyed by that performance. Yeah, I think it's um I think it's interesting that well at least in my opinion I'd say given all the criticism of Chelsea's defense in terms of the the new signings this summer Mendy, Chilwell and Silva have all made a, a bigger impression so far than than Havertz, Werner and Zayech, not really Zayech's fault because he's been injured, but <laughs> it's the the first time Chelsea have kept a clean sheet in the Premier League outside of London since the last day of the 2018-19 season. Nil nil terrible nil nil draw at Leicester under hmm. Maurizio Sarri just before the Europa League final. Matt, you tweeted something about the goalie in the defence all speaking French today. Thiago Silva yes. comes from Paris and Zuma and uh, Mondi as well. Mm. Do you think that's a genuine thing? Yeah, I do. I think uh, obviously Cesar Azpilicueta uh, speaks French from from his time in Marseille as well. I think when you've got new faces in a defence like that and, and you're looking at Thiago Silva a lot of the time to be the person organising, it, it, it must be impossible to organise people to do things if you can't speak the language that, that they speak. Um, so, yeah, everybody speaking in French on, on Saturday must have been a massive help. I think Chelsea looked better with three at the back anyway, generally. Um, but to um, to have Aspilicueta there alongside Thiago Silva and, you know, that's the way that they were going to do it, it it's got to be a, a really big help for him. But, but as Dom alluded to, you know, Frank Lampard needs some credit. He gets a lot of criticism, not least on this podcast, and often rightly so, for the way he sends sets teams up. But he's kept out Manchester United and Sevilla in the space of a couple of days, having not been involved in a nil-nil draw previously as the Chelsea manager. So, yes, they had one shot on target, so it's feast or famine at, at both ends. But he was asked to get the defence right, and over the course of the last week, it looks as though he's done that, given how dreadful they were against Southampton seven days prior. On, on United, I thought it was really interesting to hear Solskjaer talk after the game, almost as if he'd pre-planned to, to discuss the, the Paris Saint-Germain win of more than a year ago and the dreadful run that United went on after that. He seemed to suggest that this was definitely one-point game because they only won two of their 12 matches after 
after winning in Paris last time, which I thought was a very odd thing for him to say. He's, he's, he's generally a relentlessly positive, almost to the point of comedy manager. Um, and to, to kind of, uh, to, it, was, it almost was an, a, an inadvertent admission that he was kind of haunted by that run and was just desperate to avoid that. Whereas actually Chelsea setting up as they did made it pretty clear early on that they weren't you know they weren't going to go all out, and they probably weren't even going to try and counterattack that quickly. They they were happy for a point, so it was odd to see Solskjaer's United not try and play with a little bit more attacking fluidity to try and break down a team, um, because you know the criticism of them is that they, they can only beat teams on the counter, and the only way to get rid of that criticism is to is to prove it wrong. And this was a, a pretty obvious opportunity. Even after 10, 15 minutes, it looked like Chelsea were going to sit deep to get a message across to the players to say, right, let's try and break a, a big six team down who is sitting back. We mm. we need to do this. And they kind of just pat, almost deliberately passed up that opportunity, which I thought was a bit strange. You know, this is a Manchester United team who have not won in five league games at Old Trafford, which is their worst run since 1990. So they have to learn to do it. And it just felt like a missed opportunity in that regard. His substitutions, though, were an attempt. Were they not to... Try and win the game, bringing on the like, Pogba, Cavani. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they were the the obvious solutions. Although Cavani isn't particularly fit, and Pogba doesn't really play that creative midfield role as much anymore. But it, it, the whole game plan looked as if you know it was no surprise to me watching that Chelsea were going to try and play more defensive as soon as the teams were announced. So it just seemed a bit odd that that Solskjaer, even after the game, seemed to talk up this as one point gained when. Mm. In effect, having gone, you know, having not won at home for so long, this is this is what they need to do. You know, there's an opportunity this season for them to win the title. Let's be honest, because there's an opportunity for everyone, given how the season's playing out. So it just seemed a really an odd way of playing it. It kind of felt like um, he had a sort of emergency plan rather than a you know a proactive plan to to go out and win the game, which I was just a bit surprised about. Football three six five uh, asking on Saturday, could you pick a seven aside team from United starting eleven that would beat? The bench they had against Chelsea, probably not. Uh, the bench being Pogba, Cavani, Greenwood, Van der Beek, Twanzebe, Matic and Dean Henderson. Yikes. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I mean, Van der, Van der Beek, as you mentioned before, James, there's a sort of lingering shots of him um, sat in the crowd, sort of wondering quite where this all came from because he was this you know, bright thing that was going to come in and... and assist Bruno Fernandes in the midfield creativity and he will get a chance and you know Jurgen Klotz proved at Liverpool that players can take time to settle but I think given how United have played we we would see more of him by now. One other thing a point here for Chelsea but they should have had a penalty no for Maguire's manhandling of Azpilicueta. Yeah that was incredible I mean to, to have dismissed it so quickly as well you know you could say that Martin Atkinson didn't have a very good view of it but for for Stuart Atwell, who was the the VAR, to to have presumably looked at it fleetingly and said yes, that's fine, uh, seemed absolutely bizarre. It was the clearest penalty all weekend, I thought. Mm. Well, Man United back in action in the Champions League midweek. They are hosting uh, RB Leipzig, but actually here taking on Paris Saint Germain in that same group. While Chelsea will make the uh, trip to Krasnodar in southern Russia, while Sevilla take on Rennes from their group. Meanwhile, the other Manchester team, Manchester City, went all the way down to London to take on West Ham, who they always beat, only this time they didn't. A 1-1 draw featuring goal of the weekend, that stunning overhead kick from Mikel Antonio. Yes, although as as Michael Cox rightly pointed out on Twitter, it did take a, a really annoying deflection that probably didn't change the course of the goal, but aesthetically you wanted it to avoid. 
Right. I thought it was an extraordinary goal, not least because he does it with his feet, both feet on the ground. Usually you get the kind of the whip of the body's spin, which kind of catapults the ball in, into the net. But here he's got a defender touch tight on him and he kind of leans back into him and somehow extraordinary flexibility manages to kind of fire that ball over both of their shoulders into the net. Incredible. As is West Ham's run. So they've played Wolves, Leicester, Spurs and Man City and had, uh, what, two draws and two victories. It's remarkable. They've got Liverpool next. Can they complete the set, Dominic Fifield? We we wouldn't rule it out at the moment. They are playing very, very well. I, th- I guess a lot of it will, de- will depend upon Antonio's fitness. Um, he has been... Magnificent. I think only, am I right in thinking that only Harry Kane has scored more since football began again post lockdown? It's, it's, he, he's right out there and he, and he just offers them a complete new dimension up, up top in the, in the energy and the, and the direct running. Um, I, I just think that David Moyes is doing a really, really good job on the quiet, really. I know, I know there's, there's so much turmoil behind the scenes at that club. Um, and it's almost in some ways, <laughs> It's a get out of a jail free card in the fact that there's no blooming fans in the in the stadium to to voice their frustration at the board, but actually he's he's doing tremendously well. Um, I can't wait to see Sai Ben Rama in in the team when he's when he's up and running. I think he'll add something something new and exciting to them as well. And yeah, I mean they're certainly they're not going to struggle like they did last year. They look like a team that's kicking on. Although, as you say, there is that question mark over Antonio's fitness after he came off in this game. As for City. Their remarkable record of when being behind at halftime, not winning games, continues. It's now 104 games in which they've been behind after 45 minutes, and they've only managed to come back and win one of them. Although, of course, in this one they did equalise. Phil Foden, six minutes after he came on as a halftime substitute, they're all the way down in 13th place at the moment, early days and that. But what's gone on? I think they... (laughs) I mean, you speak to any Manchester City supporter and they'll tell you that the one thing you shouldn't be is surprised because this is, to use a, a phrase of our times, is their new normal because this has been coming for 18 months. Both the, the defensive incompetence, the, the really infuriating injuries they get to key players, the profligacy in front of goal and this, this weird midfield conundrum where Rodri can't really protect the defence on himself and Andino's legs aren't quite there anymore. Okay, Gundogan just sort of looks like a jobbing mid-table central midfielder now. And Phil Foden is suddenly, arguably, their most important player because Bernardo Silva's form's dropped off, Riyad Mahrez's form's dropped off. It, it, it's a really difficult one to solve because it isn't just one issue. It's issues across the pitch. And, um, you know, Guardiola's contract ends at the end of the season. So these are big months for, for modern-day Manchester City because I... I, I think we all imagine that the city would still love to keep him, but if it's not going that well, you know, he might feel like it's time for a, you know another one of his sabbaticals. I think their their recruitment over the last three or four years certainly bears some scrutiny for a club with unlimited resources. They, they they've had more misses than hits, I would say, in players that they've signed. Um, but I do wonder it might be might be sacrilege, but I do wonder if maybe Guardiola's 
football is getting to be a little bit outdated in the way that we've made that criticism of Mourinho in recent years and, and whether the kind of lack of an alternative way of playing and having subsequently been figured out by opponents is, is meaning that they, Steve Wilson on Match of the Day called them a tribute act, a Manchester City tribute act. And, and that's quite accurate in a way. Mm. They're, not, they're not anywhere near what they were two, three years ago. When, when you say outdated, Matt, what do you mean? Kind of overly concerned with possession or, or what is it? Um, yeah, that to an extent, but maybe outdated is the wrong word. Just predictable is probably mm. a better word to use. Um, you know, that that's something which happens to managers a lot. It's certainly something that, that happened to Mourinho, I think. But it must be quite easy to, to set up against Manchester City or to plan for the game, at least, because you know what's coming. You know, we saw Liverpool, who we'll talk about shortly, adjust their system quite cleverly this weekend. And you just don't see that happening with Manchester City because Guardiola is so wedded to this way of playing and it, and it has classically been so successful for him but you know these things are finite in football aren't they eventually somebody figures out a way to do it and once one person figures out a way to stop it then then everybody else copies it I do think they really miss the pace of, of Leroy Sané as well because they were they were a, a ruthless counter-attacking team with Sterling and Sané on the break and, and Aguero with the pace he, he had and maybe doesn't anymore as a, as a three-pronged counter-attack with De Bruyne playing the passes and they're just lacking, you know, even the, the Sané move where he got in behind to the byline and played it back for, for Sterling to score from six yards out. They, they they haven't tried to replace Leroy Sané, we assume deliberately, but that seems to be the one kind of cheap move that they had that they are now unable to do. This is football like never before. This is Sportsbroker, the new real money gaming app. At Sportsbroker, buy and sell virtual shares in the world's biggest teams and be at the heart of the football action. Buy teams low, sell them high and own the game with Sportsbroker. Join now at sportsbroker.com or download on the App Store and Google Play. Sportsbroker, own the game. Always play responsibly, over 18s only. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. All right then, Matt, you were mentioning Liverpool, who had a gritty 2-1 win over Sheffield United. Is that a fair adjective to use for this this clash on Saturday? It's now 62 Premier League home games without defeat for Liverpool. They've won 28 of the last 29 of those. As for the Blades, it's now nine Premier League matches without a win. And as we mentioned, Man City arriving next Saturday... What was your take then? How did Liverpool switch things around to get this uh, vital three points? So, yeah, they, they, they went to a 4-2-3-1 and, and Klopp explained afterwards that his thinking behind that was kind of as a concession to the fact that Sheffield United had had a full week to build up to the game and, and Liverpool obviously had played in the Champions League and, and therefore their training sessions have basically been recovery sessions rather than preparing for the next match and, and you know, how, how are we going to play against this opposition kind of thing. So just that that simple thing through Sheffield United, something that they weren't expecting and and had an effect in this game in particular. I mean, other things had an effect too. The fact they had Alisson back, obviously, being pretty key in that because Sheffield United had a lot of chances to score other than the goal that they did manage, which um, I think was a penalty. I don't think we need to spend ages talking about that because, you know, we'll get bogged down in VAR and stuff. Um, could easily have gone 2-0 up as well, but uh, as, soon as, as soon as Liverpool got back into it, you always felt that they would go on and win it. It was just quite galling that that Mohamed Salah goal, which would surely have been the goal of the weekend, um, didn't stand. Yeah, what a shame. 
Liverpool in Champions League action midweek host Midtjylland, whilst in this very entertaining-looking group, Atalanta will be hosting Ajax in the other game. Ajax, how did they do this weekend, Daniel? <laughs> just the uh, just the thirteen nil against mid-table VVV Venlo. Um, yeah. Vey, 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 Venlo, by the way. They're, they're mid-table after a few games in the Eredivisie, but I used to commentate on quite a lot of their games um, a number of years ago, and they are the archetypal yo-yo club of Dutch football. They're, they're not perennially mid-table. They always struggle against relegation. So, yeah, they don't always lose 13-0, but, yeah, they're not great. Can you imagine commentating on this one, Matt? Yeah, it would have been fun, yeah. 4-0 at half-time, and then VV Venlo uh, picked up a, a red card s- seven minutes into the second half. Uh, and then Ajax scored another nine more goals. We just, we've spent a lot of time, too much time, frankly, uh, on this podcast discussing why teams never get to double figures and why teams always back off after a high-scoring first half. But none of that happened here. Ajax had 45 shots. Veve Ve missing Lee Catamol in midfield. Clearly, he would have stiffened things up a bit. I mean, it, honestly, though, what if you can watch the highlights? Because Matt's yo-yo would have done better in goal than Vevevey's goalkeeper. <laughs> who, I mean, the phrase "going down in instalments" for a goalkeeper diving could not be more apt. It was an astonishing display. Lucina Triori got five of the uh, thirteen goals, so well done him. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see how Ajax uh, get on when they take on the usually free-scoring Atalanta. Uh, this midweek. Atlanta actually got beaten 3-1 by Sampdoria. The second straight league defeat. Anyway, Champions League, that's all coming up midweek. This weekend, league-leading Everton went down to St Mary's and lost 2-0 on the anniversary, as everybody pointed out, of Southampton's 9-0 collapse, kind of continuing the theme, to Leicester. Uh, Saints, though, putting in a performance 12 months on that Everton had no answer to whatsoever. Yeah, and sort of almost as significant as the anniversary of the 9-0 is the fact that, that Southampton have won three out of four, the other the other game being that draw at Chelsea after they got hammered by Spurs at St Mary's you know, not that long ago. They, they've even managed to turn around from that. But a lot of this came down to um, Seamus Coleman not being available for Everton and Southampton deciding that, that Nathan Redmond and, and Ryan Bertrand were going to double up on Ben Godfrey, who was playing right back and is not a right back. Um, also, credit to Jan Bednarek and, and Yannick Vestergaard, who had a torrid time at Stamford Bridge last week, the pair of them, but kept Dominic Calvert-Lewin far quieter than he's been all season. And, and in Adams and Ings, Southampton have got a lovely blend of, of two players up front. Ings did most of his good work with his back to goal. And Adams, yeah, he, like Southampton, deserve credit for sticking with Hasenhutl after the 9-0. Hasenhutl deserves credit for sticking with Adams after he struggled for the vast majority of his, his first season. Finished quite well, got that goal against Man City, didn't he, um, after the restart and kind of kicked on a little bit from there. But now looks much more like the, the genuine article. And, and yeah, Southampton, very worthy winners here. And I was amazed to see Carlo Ancelotti saying they were going to appeal that Luca Dean red card and it was a disgrace and he should never have been sent off. I thought it was an, an outrageous tackle, not once but twice on Walker Peters. The second one was... was Look malicious and dangerous, and no argument that it should have been a red card. This from the Dirty Toffees, who, of course, last round had Pickford's assault on Van Dyke and Richardson uh, picking up the suspension for the, 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 the foul on uh, Thiago Alcantara. 
The current odds have Everton expected to finish in seventh at the end of the season, which is interesting because no team that's ever been top after six games, which they are still on goal difference over Liverpool, has finished outside the top four in more than 20 years. Broadly speaking, is this one of those days or is the bubble bursting a little bit for the Toffees? Those absentees just demonstrate that there isn't that much squad depth there. I mean, their first eleven's excellent and as they showed over the first few weeks of the season. But, I mean, Seamus Coleman, massive, massive loss. Um, and with Kenny also out um, as a, as an alternative natural right-back. Um, and then when you take Richarlison out of that front line, I mean, poor Alex Awobi looked utterly, utterly lost in the first half. And it was almost a mercy taking him off at half-time. Just on that, on, I'm, not, I'm not sure that was a malicious tackle I thought it was clumsy the second the first one definitely he tries to bring him down cynically and and he and Kyle Walker Peters wriggles on and I suspect that that's what has the referee has seen and and, and he sort of think he thinks I presume he thinks that Luca Dina is 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 angry and frustrated and he's gonna pile in but I actually just thought he it was clumsy I, th- I think he just put his foot down and it just so happened to be that Walker Peters's ankle was in the way um I don't, I don't think he actually went out to 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 bring him down it, and he wasn't making a tackle in the same way for example that Kamara was on Eze at, at Craven Cottage the, the 24 hours earlier it was just a clumsy run um, but the way that he I'm not saying it wasn't sending off it was definitely sending off because the, the way that Walker Peters then drags his right ankle with Luca Dina his, his studs implanted in it and sort of rides rides the ankle it's horrific to see absolutely horrific and as soon as the, the referee watched that in slow motion he was going to send him off yeah, maybe it's the maybe it's the replay that's colouring my thinking there. But the reason that I use the word malicious is I think if you if if Dean was angry there, you just kick the player over. You just kick him over, and the free kick goes, and and, and Walker Peters falls over and gets back up again. But uh, as you say, implant the studs yeah. on the ankle felt unnecessary. He was sent off for serious foul play, wasn't he? It wasn't it wasn't violent conduct. It was serious foul play. He's endangered an opponent through clumsiness, and yeah, it was justified red card, and, and I'm sure that Carlo Ancelotti's appeal on Everton's appeal will be thrown out. I also wonder whether Ancelotti might have got himself into a bit of hot water by sort of implying that the referee might have been swayed by the reaction to the to the Pickford um, and Richarlison tackles last week. It almost implied that the, the referee was not biased, but um, not being quite as impartial as he should have been. Mm. So no Richarlison next week and quite possibly no Luca Dean either when Everton will be travelling to Newcastle. That's on Sunday. Newcastle, who themselves this Sunday came up with a, uh, well, a, a surprise equaliser away at Wolves. It's surprising, actually, that there were any goals in this game based on the first 80 minutes or so. Yeah, it was, it was, a, it was a piece of classic Steve Bruce Newcastling, for better and for worse, in that they were... They were pretty abject for long periods of the game you couldn't really see what they were trying to do in the well in the opposition half never mind the opposition final third um they went one nil down which was absolutely valid uh and then they produce a goal from a a situation where you would not normally expect a goal to be scored a, a kind of really badly assembled wall and a free kick put in just the right place to 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 score and again you kind of you know, you see exasperated Newcastle fans, and I completely understand it. Saying, you know, that we're not trying to do anything here; we're just trying to not lose games and stay up. Which, 
and Steve Bruce will say, well, well, yeah, but we've we've drawn with Tottenham and we've drawn with Wolves and we were one all against Manchester United for long periods until I he thinks they went too attacking. Never mind less. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty eye bleeding to watch at times. It was a lovely free kick though from Jacob Murphy and his first goal in one thousand and nine days in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, he, he hasn't played much, it should be said, in the Premier League, which can accounts for most of those days. But, right. Um, yeah, well, you know, it was, it was a good, it was well delivered. It's just that I think if the wall does its job, it probably doesn't get scored. OK. Meanwhile, Raul Jimenez can see the future. Matt? Um, I just I just wanted to, to make mention of Fabian Cher passing the ball to a water bottle and then blaming the water bottle for not controlling it and it going out of play for a throw-in. That was one of my favourite moments of the weekend. Seems fair. But on the subject of Raul Jimenez and the opening goal, that was something quite remarkable as well, the way that he so completely understood what was going to happen in the next 60 seconds of football when any number of things could have come from that corner kick. He just happened to put himself in exactly the right place at the edge of the area to... To, to, to hammer in an opening goal. Spectacularly. And you'd imagine that he would normally be in, in the six-yard box trying to attack the ball in the air, but it was a wonderful finish. I mean, absolutely. Belter of a finish right into the, t- the corner. And at that stage, it looked as if Wolves were heading for the top four and, and justifiably, I mean, they're getting some of their old verve back, but drifted out, drifted out. And again, they just look a team that's still in transition and still trying to work out how to integrate new players, how to get the best out of Adama Traore still. He's still an impact substitute, which must must be frustrating for him, but th- th- there must there must be a, a way that they can get him playing with all the... Um, in the manner that he was for long periods last season as well, and a, a force of nature on, on the flank. But they just look as if they're sort of weighing up a few options and not quite hitting the right balance as yet. We should say we criticised Newcastle last week for allowing 18 shots per game um, as a, an obscenely high number, but they did only concede 16 to Wolves, so um, <laughs> things are getting better. Is that just in the second half? Because Wolves notoriously <laughs> don't don't actually turn up for the first 45 minutes. Yeah, I mean, n- the viewer didn't have to turn up for the first 45 minutes, mm. it should be said. Right. There are a few clubs in this, in the, in this Premier League whose supporters are... Growing increasingly um, frustrated and almost disaffected with life in mid-table and an apparent lack of ambition under pragmatic management, mm-hmm. um, it's it's quite interesting to see. And I suspect that the absence from the stadium it probably boils down to that as well. You're not there to voice your frustration, so you take to social media and you moan about it on that. I think that's a really interesting point. I think it's it's absolutely true. I, I wonder if it's again it, it, the lack of fans in the in the stadium means that football has now become a purely televisual spectacle in which maybe the entertainment matters more than it does if you go every week desperate to see your side win or draw or at least mount attacks. I, I, I mean Newcastle fans were were, were angry long before um, you know lockdown. We should say, but yeah, I think it's a, a really good point because. You know, it almost feels like well, everything else is dreadful. So I want football to be my release, and if if I have to watch that every week, it isn't that. Mm. And it's a vicious circle as well because the lack of fans in stadiums undoubtedly contributes to those underwhelming performances. I, I would imagine that at Old Trafford, something more would have come from the two teams had there been a full house roaring, at mm. least one of the, the, the sides on. Don, when you talk about teams disaffected. At their mid-table status, does that include a side close to your heart, Crystal Palace, 
Or are they sufficiently high now after their 2-1 win at Fulham? He said, checking table. Oh, my word, they're up in seventh. You actually come down two places today. I'm a bit disappointed. Have you? Okay, where were you? <laughs> you were up in fifth. For about five minutes, yeah. Um, <laughs> look, personally, no. I, I think that, that everything that Roy Hodgson is, is doing, I, I like the pragmatism that he uses. I, I, I like some of the football that they play. Um, but then I'm... I don't know, maybe I'm too painfully realistic with my outlook. I know that there's a large large number of Palace supporters who are desperately frustrated and they and you know, that that's that's exacerbated like performances against Brighton the previous week where you you know, you only have one shot and it's a penalty in the entire game. And like yeah, I can understand that frustration, but but I think you need to I think you need to you need to put things into context and I think Palace have spent pretty much £60 million less than anyone else in the Premier League who's been in there for any length of time. I think Burnley are the next lowest spenders and they have spent £60 million more than Palace. Over you spent less than Burnley? Five, uh, yeah, it's astonishing. Um, but it is that is the reality of it. Palace, a net spend that is. Um, mm. Palace don't really spend a lot of money. Um, and so for them to be seventh and London's top club at the moment, <laughs> for about three days it's great and I'd I, I take that actually for 24 hours thinking about it because Spurs play tomorrow don't they damn it <laughs> right well you, you never know you never know we're at Burnley high spending Burnley as well uh, Fulham are very much London's bottom side of course everybody's bottom side and are currently enjoying their worst ever start to a top flight season one point from six games another nice performance from Adam Ola Lookman but not too many positives you would take from that game one of the better meaningless consolation goals, maybe from Tom Kearney. Mm. I was I was quite disturbed to see Ruben Loftus Cheek looking so peripheral in that match. I hardly noticed him at all, and I I, I was hoping that he would have a, a, a an excellent impact at Fulham in, in much the same way that he did at Palace. Loftus Cheek has been through this before. At, at, when he joined Palace on loan two three years back, Palace. You know, lost their first seven games of the season, didn't even score a goal en route, and yet they still finished eleventh that year, eleventh or twelfth, and well clear of trouble. I, I don't think he's going to find he's got the same calibre of teammate in terms of quality at, at Fulham, unfortunately. But it's up to him. He has to, he has to impose himself on on this side, and he and he didn't. He looked awkward on on Saturday. Well, Monday, more football to come. Spurs, as we were just mentioning, travelled to Turf Moor. And before that, Brighton take on West Brom. Then from Tuesday, it's the return of the Champions League. Very shortly, we'll be hearing from Alvaro Romeo on which one of the Spanish giants is in crisis this week after Saturday's Clasico and ahead of Barcelona's trip to Juventus on Wednesday. First, though, let's find out what Lee Price is up to today. Hello, listeners. How are you? If I were to apply an arbitrary, confusing, completely inconsistent tiered rating system to Premier League match days... Monday night's football would probably be labelled Tier 1, medium risk of entertainment. But hey, what do I know? I'm just an oafish puppet spewing contradictions from the South. And to be fair, checks notes, Jose Mourinho is the most attacking coach in the league right now. I haven't fact-checked that, typical politician, but I'm pretty sure it's legit, despite, well, everything we know about Jose in the world. Here's Tottenham team go to Burnley looking to get their mythical title challenge back on track after being scuppered by West Ham. Here comes the numbers bit, if you need to hold your breath or freeze your ears. Spurs are odds-on to win that game. The earlier kickoff, Brighton against West Brom, isn't the most enticing soundbite, but it's better than stay alert, control the virus, eat out but don't eat out, or whatever that was. 
And I'm going to adopt a striking policy here and say that this game will surprise us and be full of goals. Hey, I can always just U-turn later if it doesn't work out that way. Brighton are fun to watch and they're odds-on favourites to win this one. That's me done for another few days. TTFM. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply and when the fun stops, stop. Brand new week is busy getting underway. A brand new week that is packed with podcast fun. Matt, on Monday, uh, today for most of you, a Totally Football League show is out with host Matt Davis-Adams. Hurrah. Well, what are you talking about on that, Matt? Well, we'll be talking about Forest Derby, but we'll be trying to do it in, in a somewhat balanced way because we'll have Ryan Conway, the Athletics Derby County correspondent, right. with us. Um, we will be talking about Watford Bournemouth, amongst other things. Some some fundraising going on from people associated with Huddersfield Town. And we will give a mention to Bolton manager Ian Everts. Uh, being rather unpleasant toward his goalkeeper and telling him he needs to man up in an interview straight out of 1974. Okay, clock's going back in a very real sense for him. If you are, by the way, interested in a little bit of forest, uh, unbiased forest chat, then there's a podcast for that as well, isn't there, Matt? Yes, there sure is. It's called Two Stars. We did the first episode last week. Uh, myself and Nick Miller of this parish will be having Paul Taylor on as well. We had Daniel Taylor on uh, the first episode, senior writer for The Athletic, and he did not hold back in his opinions of the current hierarchy. So it is well worth listening to. Thursdays, we record that one. Be out sort of Thursday tea time-ish, I would say. Okay, before that, on Tuesday, there's the Offside Rule, WSL edition. There's also on Tuesday the Totally Scottish Football Show, where, which will be discussing the best goal Stephen Gerrard has ever seen live. Kemar Roos' incredible late goal for Rangers in their 2-0 win over Standard Liège last Thursday in the Europa League. Uh, if you haven't seen it, check it out. And also on Tuesday, there'll be the Totally Football Show European edition, which will look ahead to match day two of the Champions League group stage. And back at the weekend's big stories around Europe, perhaps the biggest of those big stories was the Clasico, which was on Saturday and ended 3-1 to Real Madrid. Barcelona going down to their second straight league defeat. They now lie 12th in La Liga. Messi now has no goals or assists in his last six games against Real. And all in all, things are getting pretty interesting in the Catalan capital. Let's hear now more from Alvaro Romeo. Alvaro, so 3-1 to Real Madrid. What kind of Clasico was this? Well, I think that it was a good display of football. It was a good show. Um, if you want something better than expected, according to the level that Real Madrid and Barcelona have been showing lately. So I think that uh, overall for La Liga brand, it was a good thing. I believe that Real Madrid deserved to, to win the game. And thanks to this victory, they will stop the talks of crisis until mm. the next game, basically, because you know how it is at Real Madrid. Uh, the next game is basically in the Champions League against Borussia Mönchengladbach. And I think that Real Madrid will take plenty of positives uh, to that game in Germany. And uh, Barcelona, however, look, they drew with Sevilla. They, they lost against Getafe. Now they have lost against Real Madrid. The defeat against Real Madrid leaves some question marks over Ronald Koeman's ability to read the game, uh, over their endemic intolerance to any setback during the game. But I wouldn't compare this defeat to the um, catastrophic defeats against Liverpool, for example, at Anfield, or the defeat back in August against Bayern Munich. But amid the backdrop of the captain taking the president to task in the papers last week, of Griezmann's grumbles, and, and now this defeat here, and with Juventus coming up midweek in the Champions League, how worried should we be for Ronald Koeman's Barcelona? 
I think that the players are going to be professional until the end, uh, whenever that is for uh, all of them, because we all know that, for example, Lionel Messi can uh, leave Barcelona in June 2021. I believe that this project is still quite new. I think that Ronald Koeman has still some credit and uh, Barcelona has passed from being the team with the oldest average squad in uh, in the league to being one of the youngest with the likes of Pedri, Ansu Fati, Serginho Dest, who was excellent, playing now for them. So putting all those pieces together is going to be quite difficult and it was never going to be uh, something that it will click straight away. So mm. I think that there will be some patience with Ronald Koeman, but the game against Juventus is going to be very important as well because, you know, these are the kind of games that Barcelona, obviously, they not only have to show a good image against them, but... Uh, there is also this uh, component, this ingredient of a class head-to-head -head with one of the big European teams. And lately, Barcelona haven't been able to compete against the, against the big European teams. Saturday's game, the scoreline was quite emphatic in Real's favour, but the match was pretty tight for, for most of the game. Um, Real, as you say, bouncing back from back-to-back -back defeats uh, in the Champions League and league with the return of Sergio Ramos. Is this a coincidence? No, it's not. I think Sergio Ramos improves uh, everyone at Real Madrid. Uh, certainly he improves in Rafael Varane. Uh, I think that uh, the games when Sergio Ramos haven't been there, uh, Rafael Varane has been a little bit of a, uh, of a shadow of himself or two points behind his level. Uh, there is no player like Sergio Ramos uh, taking the leadership at Real Madrid. And uh, now he's even taking the penalties. We know mm. that. And the, free, and the free kick. So he's the overall leader of the team. I think that Sergio Ramos wasn't perfect against Barcelona, especially in the first half. But still, uh, in the second half, he managed to change the game. Klimel Nenglet uh, grabbed Sergio Ramos inside the box. The referee decided to uh, call a penalty after the VAR check. And that changed the game completely. Who took the penalty? Sergio Ramos. So there you go. This is the kind of leadership that Real Madrid is lacking sometimes and the kind of leadership that Sergio Ramos is given. All that said, uh, James, let me tell you something about the, the penalty itself because uh, you know how it happened when uh, Clement Linglet just grabbed Sergio Ramos in the box. Well, in 815 La Liga players with VAR, there has been only six penalties for that reason. So, as you can see, Clement Linglet probably thought that he was going to go unpunished grabbing Sergio Ramos because normally in La Liga nobody calls these penalties. Right. He was just unlucky and that's why Ronald Koeman was so angry because he thought that that was not a penalty, not only in his eyes, but uh, considering what uh, the Spanish referees used to call and uh, don't use to call. So Sergio Ramos steps up and scores his 25th consecutive successful penalty. Extraordinary numbers for a centre-half particularly. Barcelona's chances against Juve then. They did have the 5-1 win against Ferenc Varas in the middle of last week. Are the kids going to come together and, and, and put them back on track, do you think, midweek? I think that the kids have to be protected, James, because I think that Barcelona's problems were not only that the team got lethargic uh, after Real Madrid scored their their second goal, uh, but also the fact that at times they were playing with a 4-2-4 formation. The team was basically broken in two pieces, attack and defense. And uh, players like Pedri or Serginho Dest or Ansu Fati, uh, who are very young as well, I think that they will appreciate from having like a, an experience a structure that they can benefit from. And I think that uh, this is one of the things that Ronald Koeman has to address against Juventus. Probably Miral and Pjanic, uh, very experienced players, uh, could uh, solve this problem in a way. And uh, one thing that Barcelona will not have this season, and this is going to be a problem looking forward to the future, is uh, not having a number nine 
because mm. yesterday Martin Braithwaite uh, had to play uh, a little bit and uh, he is not a top striker, but his contribution was very welcome at Barcelona because nobody could actually hold the ball, keep it, win the aerial battles. And, uh, and yeah, not having a top striker is going, to, is going to be something that Barcelona is going to miss definitely against Juve. I think that uh, Ronald Koeman can fix the midfield a little bit, but Barcelona will have a problem up front for the rest of the season because they just don't have a proper number nine who can do the target man job. I see. Pjanic, of course, experience not just in, in top flight football, but also in uh, Torinese football because uh, of all the years he spent at Juve. All right. Alvaro, thank you so much. We'll hear more from you in Tuesday morning's Totally Football Show European edition for now. Hasta luego. Hasta luego. Looking forward to that. Alvaro Romeo. Very good. That brings us to the end of today's Totally Football Show. Dom, Matt, Daniel, is there anything else you'd like to add about what has been game week six? or match day six, or round six this Premier League season. I posed the question back at the start, who turned the goals off? Do you know that's something that we didn't really address? Are things reverting to normal, do you think? Or is it just accumulation of injuries or tiredness or all that kind of... Is this going to be how it's going to be from now on? I think there was always going to be a reaction. I mean, I don't think managers were going to put up with leaky defences forever and I think what we've seen with Chelsea going almost the other way and and you know prioritising almost <laughs> Sam Allardyce-esque defending is 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 probably what a lot of the, the coaches want to do but but likewise I think fatigue comes into it um the the sheer number of games will catch up with players and it it will take the edge off some of the creativity and some of the attacking flair I imagine mm. Let's hope it doesn't do that to the podcast. Certainly had no impact on Daniel. I was just going to make a, a, another general point about uh, English goal scorers and English strikers. Hmm. Um, in the last 10 game weeks of the Premier League, so split over the restart and this season, the six different English players have scored Premier League hat-tricks. Obviously, Bamford got one on Friday night, which, to put that into context... In the seven years before that, only 13 had scored Premier League hat-tricks. It seems kind of weird. It felt like a year ago everyone was panicking what would happen if Harry Kane wasn't fit. And now suddenly we've got Bamford and Ollie Watkins has scored a hat-trick this season. It's, it's, it's a remarkable crop of talent we've somehow unearthed from somewhere. I don't know if it's almost a sort of Kane setting a, 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 a high bar that other strikers are now aiming to follow after he kind of travailed in lower league loans and that sort of thing or or if it's just pure chance but it's it's pretty good to see mm. I'd, I'd still be panicking a bit if Harry Kane got injured though, <laughs> <laughs> ever the pessimist Dom. <laughs> well on that note that's where we'll wrap up this Totally Football show Dom, Dan and Matt thank you so much for being with us listener thank you for your company loads to come from Totally over the next few days and the Totally Football show back with its regular Premier League preview of course on Thursday as well. Do hope you have a splendid week. And for now, from all of us here, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy News Media.